It's good to be back with you this Sunday. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 11. Grateful for Pastor Andrew filling in for me last week so that my family could go see our family in North Carolina and in northern Florida. But it's good to be back home here with our church family today. And we're glad to see you. And happy Father's Day to you as well. Mark 11. And we'll be focusing on verses 22 to 25 today. But I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 20. Mark 11 Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. If producing guilt in Christians was a game, prayer very well could be the trump card, the boardwalk, the Yahtzee, the checkmate, or the Uno card. I would simply ask you this question to begin today. Do you lack confidence when your prayer life is under the spotlight? Has it ever been under the spotlight? Have you ever had anyone ask you in love and kindness and care, how are things between you and the Lord? How is your prayer life? Meals accepting, of course. We're not talking about just you praying before breakfast and lunch and dinner. I'm talking about your vital communication with God. How's the quantity of your prayer life? Is it like clockwork? Or is it more like the full moon <laughs> happening every once in a while? Or is it confined, even worse, to major religious holidays and the occasional catastrophe? What about the quality of your prayer life? Is it like talking to thin air for you, or is it more like a conversation with your best friend? Do you feel like your prayer life is that which would move mountains? It's this list of answered prayers that you've seen down through the years? Or does it seem more like a struggle to even move pebbles? You don't even know if it's making a difference. If your prayer life isn't what you hoped it would be, or what you feel like God would want it to be, then this passage in particular is for you. See, the sad reality is that when our prayer life is not where it should be or where we want it to be, we've cut ourselves off from God's prevailing power, and this has several negative outcomes in our life. As I list these, maybe you can resonate with a few of them. 
You ever feel overwhelmed, overrun, beaten down, pushed around, defeated? The bad news this morning is that surprising numbers of people who claim to be Christians are willing to settle for lives just like that. Defeated, hopeless, helpless. But there's good news. The good news is that nobody has to live like that. And the even better news is that the answer to such dilemma is in the passage today. Now we know, for those of you who have been involved in our study, that Mark is most concerned about people identifying Jesus as the long-promised divine Messiah. That's his main goal in writing this book. But it's not his only goal. He's also concerned that we follow him appropriately. And one of the key ways in which we follow this Jesus is through prayer. So on the heels of portraying Jesus' kingly authority in Mark chapter 11 and his condemnation of the temple, which we saw a couple weeks ago, we now have, kind of oddly placed it could seem, this commendation of prayer. Now, the context here is vital to understanding the full import of this passage today. Again, if you're just joining us, or you haven't been involved in this study of Mark, you're probably wondering, what does this stuff about a fig tree have to do with prayer? Well, let me give you a little bit of a review for those of you who haven't been able to join us. Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, has just seen this fig tree that's been withered from the roots up. It's dead to the very core. Now, we learned a couple of weeks ago that this was somewhat of a symbolic act on Jesus' part to predict the way that he was going to deal with the whole Jewish nation. He's saying, like, this tree represents the nation of Israel, which is represented by the temple, and he hates hypocrisy. It had green leaves on it, but it wasn't bearing any fruit, and he was going to shut it down. And so, there's this passage that starts off with Jesus being disappointed with a fig tree, pronouncing a curse on it, Then it's followed by Jesus going to this grand, magnificent temple with all of this religious externalism and cleaning house. And he is absolutely outraged at what he sees there, and he shuts it down, literally, in the best way that he can. And then the story ends with the next day, Jesus having, uh, the disciples, excuse me, having seen that this tree was dead. It was communicating a powerful spiritual lesson. It was communicating that God does not or will not tolerate religious externalism. God intended for his people to be a people of prayer, a people who were reaching the Gentile nations. They were not that, and he was moving on. And so Mark shared Jesus' teaching here on how to be an effective intercessor in light of the fact that the temple itself had been shut down. The text shows us today basically two ways in which Jesus expects his people to be effective intercessors. Two ways in which his people can be powerful in prayer. I'll explain the relationship to the temple more in just a moment. But now, just I want you to think simply about what this text is teaching us. We're going to look at two imperatives for powerful prayer. The first of which is exercising faith in God. If you would be an effective intercessor, if you would be what God intended his people to be, you must exercise faith in God. We see this clearly in verses 22 to 24. Let's look at it again. And Jesus answered them, 
Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now although this may be simple for you today, reading this, the original readers of Mark's gospel would have struggled to put their faith in God directly, and they needed this exhortation. Basically, in light of the context of what we've seen just happening to the temple, they would have read the passage this way, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God as opposed to the temple. The temple. He's correcting the object of their faith. He's telling them that if they want to have power to do that which God has called them to do, that they were going to need to trust in God and not some building. Jesus had just condemned the temple. The temple was the heart of the Jewish religious establishment. It was the picture of its national identity. And we know from reading later in Mark's gospel that Jesus will later say that not one stone of this temple will remain on top of another. And truly, in AD 70, that would very well happen. We also know that at Jesus' crucifixion, the temple veil would be rent from top to bottom, thereby rendering it totally ineffective. So Jesus' act earlier was just symbolic of some future reality that was going to take place. And for those who are reading this, the question becomes, well, how do we pray without a temple? This is a crisis for the faithful of that day. What would the destruction of the temple mean for the future of religion? How would the people of God move forward without a temple, a sacred space? What would be the rallying point of Judaism without this sacred property and all that it represented? Now, I want you to remember something. Because those of you who are sitting here today are thinking like, who cares? The temple was destroyed. It's not a big deal. But you have to think about this from their vantage point. It is impossible, nearly, for us to overstate the importance of the temple for first century Jews. A couple weeks ago, I said that it was like the White House and the Capitol building and the Supreme Court and the nation's largest church all wrapped up into one. Could you imagine if all three of those, four of those things just were destroyed in the same day? You thought 9-11 was bad. That would be catastrophic. And yet, in effect, that is what had happened to the Jewish people when Jesus predicted that that temple would be destroyed. If you just read the rabbis of that day, first century rabbis, I'll give you two quotes that will convey a little bit of the importance that they held for the temple. One wrote, When a man prays in Jerusalem, it is though he prays before the throne of glory. For the gate of heaven is in Jerusalem, and a door is always open for the hearing of prayer. That's a pretty high regard for the temple. Listen to what was said shortly after the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Here's another rabbi writing. From the day on which the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer have closed. Another wrote, Now that the temple has been destroyed, a wall of iron divides between Israel and their Father in heaven. Knowing one's identity and capacity apart from the temple would be akin to us today knowing how to be a secretary without a desk or a teacher without a classroom or an investor without a bank or a homemaker apart from a house or a cook without a kitchen or a basketball player apart from a hoop. 
They just could not fathom, how will we pray? How will we conduct God's business apart from this establishment? Now, in each of the instances that I just gave you, identity and capacity are directly tied to something outside of the individual. I'll give you an example. You're a secretary. Part of being a secretary is sitting at a desk. If you're a teacher, part of what it means to be a teacher is to have a classroom. If you're an investor, you've got to have a bank. If you're a cook, you need a kitchen. If you're a basketball player, you have a hope. You get that? It's to, your identity is in part affected by some object outside of you. For these first century Jews, who were claiming to be part of the people of God, it was necessary, it was vital, it was imperative that they had some connection to the temple. This was the gateway to heaven. This was the thing that would connect them to God Himself. So the question's asked, naturally, how will we be followers of Yahweh without the temple? And the question remains for us. How will we be God's people in our day how will we identify with Christ and have the power to serve Him? We're, excuse me, wherein lies the secret of our success. And here's where I want you to notice something in your text. Look with me carefully at chapter 11 again and all the way down to verse 22. Notice this. We believe that every word is inspired, and this is a key one, Jesus says in verse 22, and, or Mark says, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. I remember the first time I was reading this seriously in preparation for this message, just, well, it was actually back in summer of last year. Um, I remember thinking, what, what does this have to do with the destruction of the temple? Are these things even related? Are we just switching subjects here? And yet I want you to know that these things are directly related. Notice that term, Jesus answered them. That's a specific Greek word for responding to something, not just Jesus made up something new or Jesus started a new subject. In response to what Peter had observed about this fig tree and thereby the nation of Israel being cursed, Jesus is beginning to answer. He's beginning to respond. He's beginning to reply in a certain way. And he wants them to understand the connection. He's saying to them, basically, don't be concerned about the temple. Be concerned about your faith in God. The point is that they used to depend upon the temple. And now Jesus wanted them to depend on God in prayer. Their identity and enablement had been in a building, a visible establishment. Now it would be direct dependence upon God in prayer. This was supposed to identify the new people of God. And instead of being confident in it, now they were to be confident in Him. Then he says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, the statement to follow would seem so unbelievable to the original readers that Jesus adds this formal judicial preface. Anytime you see that in your Bibles, we've pointed it out several times in the book of Mark already. Truly I say to you, Jesus is about to say something that people will have a hard time believing, 
And so the formula, truly I say, is something akin to our modern day, I solemnly swear. He's saying that what he is telling them is important. It is basically, we know that all of the word is inspired, but this is like taking a highlighter by God himself and placing it over the inspired word itself. Even God himself is emphasizing what is about to be said. And what is it that he emphasizes? Well, it's this activity of believing and seeing great things come to pass. Notice he presents this general principle here of this active, ongoing faith in God. If someone had that, anyone could command a mountain to be uprooted and thrown into the sea. Now first, I want you to notice the condition here. He's very clear that there needs to be an active, ongoing faith in God. He even says it negatively, not doubting in his heart. Believing continually that what he says will actually happen. So the condition is faith without doubting. The consequence or the result is this mountain, one of the biggest objects in their knowledge, being totally immovable, being cast into the sea, which was the epitome of destruction. How do you destroy a mountain? And then he says at the end, you want that to happen, it will be done for him. It's emphatic. Now, what does he mean by this? Have you seen anybody move any mountains lately? Have you ever actually, in the history of Christendom, been able to look back and point to anyone, Jesus himself included, actually uprooting physically a mountain and placing it into a sea? No. But what this does convey, though, is just simply Jesus' unstoppable power to do the impossible. This much is clear. I think we need to grant first century literature the same courtesy that we extend to one another. When people use hyperbole or exaggeration, they're trying to make a point. (laughs) While we believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture, part of taking people literally is understanding figurative language. We just saw Jesus do this a couple of chapters earlier when he says that it would be easier for a rich man to make it into, it'd be easier, excuse me, for a camel to make it through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Eye of a needle, camel, going through. He's talking about that which is impossible. Moving a mountain was a proverbial statement of that day that was regularly known to convey that same idea. The impossible. God would do the impossible. Mountain moving was the prerogative of God alone. Exodus 19, 18 talks about God trembling Sinai, or in Job 9, 5 to 6, it talks about Yahweh removing or overturning mountains. Psalm 90, verse 2, talks about God bringing forth the mountains. In Psalm 90, verse 5, it talks about Him melting mountains like wax. In Nahum 1, 5, it talks about the mountains quaking and melting. The point of this is that God will enable the impossible. When you pray in faith, it will do the work that only He can do Listen to this, even without a temple. Even without a temple. If the temple had become something of their security blanket, Jesus here calls them to believe in God directly. You know what a security blanket is. You've had kids, you've seen kids. There's different names for it. The formal psychological name is a security object. It could be a bear, a blanket, a t-shirt, an action figure, a doll, or whatever. Something that some child clings to that we all know as adults. 
will do absolutely nothing in the face of catastrophe. (laughs) I mean, really. (laughs) What would your blanket actually do to that mobster in the closet? Zero. I'm glad the younger kids are out. I'm not meaning to, (laughs) to offend you. But it makes them feel good. That's what the temple was for these Jews. It was something that made them feel good. It was like, God is here. Look at how beautiful this building is. We're close to Him because we have a temple. And what Jesus is trying to point out lovingly here is that this does nothing for you. Instead of clinging to this object, why don't you cling to your loving and all-powerful Heavenly Father directly? He's the one that can enable you to do that which needs to be done. So, what I love about this verse, or this passage, is that Jesus first presents this as a hypothetical in verse 23. He says, if anyone believes this and does that. But notice verse 24, he turns it practical. He makes it very concrete. And whenever you stand, excuse me, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So first he just presents it as, all right, let's just suppose that this happens. This will happen. Now he translates it into actual action. He moves from abstract to concrete, from impersonal to personal, from hypothetical to actual, telling us that in light of this, since this is true, therefore I command you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Therefore, on account of this, pray with faith. Jesus is saying this is reality, and in light of this reality, you should do what? Pray. He's telling them that power and prayer will not come from a constructed temple, but from confidence and trust in an all-powerful God. Could you imagine how reassuring this would be for those first century disciples? Now, while those of us here in our 21st century context would have a hard time viewing a temple or a sacred space with such affection and longing, I think you could more readily identify with the disciples. You've seen them and studied them through the book of Mark so far, and every amazing and impossible thing that's happened up to this point in Mark's narrative has happened because Jesus, physically present, has enabled it. Could you imagine the fear that this first generation of believers would face when they saw that Jesus ascending into heaven and not physically present with them? Can you imagine the grace that this passage would have offered for them to know that even though He was gone, they would still have access to all the power that they needed to accomplish the impossible task they were given. I mean, the odds were pretty overwhelming. It was a couple hundred versus the world. Currently, in our own day, it's a billion people who claim to be believers. But they were going to have to reach the world. That was the message or the mission that he gave to them. And their only power, their only link to the divine power that they saw here on this planet would have to be faith in God directly. He's telling them it's not the temple, it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the power of the gospel. When you continue to read through the book of Mark on into the other gospels, you'll begin to learn that it was Jesus who opened up a way for us to have access to God directly. We were distant from Him, far from Him, and yet when Jesus died on the cross, 
It satisfied God's wrath, thereby enabling us not just to go to Him in some physical place, but to be with Him, for Him to actually live in us and among us, and for us to be able to access Him directly through the intercession of Jesus. We don't need a person anymore. We don't need a place anymore. But we now have direct access to Christ and everything that we need. I love in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 2 how the New Testament writers characterize us together as the temple of God. The temple of God, that sacred space that was supposed to like give them power in prayer, that sacred space that was supposed to ward off all kinds of evil. He says, you're that now. Now, I know that we normally think of ourselves individually as being the temple, and 1 Corinthians 6 does point to that. But the dominating metaphor throughout the New Testament is that we, the people of God, together are indwelt by the Spirit, and we have access to God because of what Christ has done. We don't need the externals, we don't need the tangibles, we don't need a person or place to access the resources to accomplish the mission of God. Now I'll say this kindly, I remember talking to one of our church members who was from a Roman Catholic background and he says, I feel like every week that you're always talking about Roman Catholicism. I have no agenda against Roman Catholicism, but I will say because of their notoriety, they're such a strong purveyor of lies that I have to be clear sometimes about certain things that people just kind of grow up believing. And here's one of those. The Roman Catholic Church has taught us down through the centuries that you have to have a cathedral or a priest or a crucifix or a rosary or a pope to be able to have special access to God. I want you to know in light of this text that we do not. We can have faith in God directly. For those of you who may have come from a church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints background, Mormons, You don't have to go pray at a special temple. You can pray to God wherever you want. You don't need any holy water. You don't need any anointing oil. We have access to God. Our faith is in Him directly. And because of just the high population of people in our church who have come from fundamentalist backgrounds, I would also say that there are no sacred steps called the altar that give us greater access to God. I remember growing up thinking that when I was on the steps in the front of the church building, that I was closer to God there than I was in other places. Listen, you are as close to God as you ever will be because of what Christ has done. It doesn't matter where you are. He has opened up the way. And so he says, believe in me, not in some place, not in some space, not in some object. So, for us, here's the lesson. The only thing standing in our way It's not God's power or our access to it, but our refusal to depend upon it. Let me say that again. The only thing standing in our way is not God's power. He's got plenty of it. It's not our access to it because we already have access to it, but it's our refusal to depend on it. That's what doubt is. When we don't pray, that is saying, "Um, I, I don't know, God, that I want your help on this one. We basically have this certified mountain mover sitting in the corner of our garage and we treat it like just this unused piece of junk. It is prayer that connects us to God's power. And we evidence our doubt not by depending, excuse me, we evidence our doubt by not depending on God in prayer. Listen, I say this with love. If there is doubt in your heart, no wonder you don't pray more. Remember when I was asking you about the quantity of your prayer life and 
For some of you, it's just this hard thing to do. It's just so hard to pray. Well, look, if you think you're wasting your time, of course you're not going to pray. If you don't think that prayer does anything or it accomplishes anything, who wants to do that? Why? It being Father's Day, it makes me think of dads not going to the doctor. (laughs) What's the doctor going to do anyway? What does he know? Has anybody ever said that? We do a similar thing with prayer. What's prayer going to do anyway? I don't even, I haven't seen anything happen. Look, that's what doubt is. And you, of course, will not see anything happen if there is doubt in your heart in that way. If there's doubt in your heart, no wonder he doesn't answer. I mean, the fact that we would actually take the time to go to God in prayer and then not believe that he would actually do what we've asked him to do is insulting. So God, I don't know that you can handle this one. I don't know that you could intervene in this situation. This is the all-powerful God of the universe, so no wonder he doesn't answer. Listen, if you want to see your prayer life turn around, I say this very practically. This week, I want to encourage you to do something. I would encourage you to alter your wording in prayer. Now, don't worry, I've already experimented on myself, and I found this to be a joyful exercise. Um, And it's added fuel to the, the fire of my prayer life. Basically, this is the exercise. Try this. Exchange the words uh, I want and I pray to I trust and I believe. Just try that. Instead of saying, God, I pray or I ask that you would do this, start praying this way. I trust, I believe that you will do this. That is an invigorating experience. (laughs) That is the way that God intends for us to pray. When you trust and believe that he will save someone who is lost that you care for. When you trust and you believe that He will enable you with the resources you need to serve Him. When you trust and you believe that He will give you victory over a besetting sin or a strong temptation. When you trust or you believe that He will give you the strength to persevere through a fiery trial. When you trust or you believe that He will give you wisdom to know what to do next when you don't know what to do. It will change the way you pray. And if I understand this text directly, this is exactly what God is calling us to do. I remember growing up as a kid, hearing this course. I don't even know if it was in the hymn book, but it went something like this. I hope this course gets stuck in your head. God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. God, any mountains you can't tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible and he can do what no other power can do you ever heard that song it's a great reality he's the one that can do it so pray pray with confidence now there's an outstanding question here for many of you who are more logically minded and that's this Why doesn't God answer prayer? There are some things that I've been believing God to do and He has not done. What do I do with that? How do I point that out to my atheist friend? Well, you come back on Wednesday night and I'll explain it in greater detail. The reason why, by the way, I refuse to divert our attention to that is because it would take our attention away from the text. If we start trying to overqualify this text with all the ifs and the ands and the buts, it loses its power. 
God wants you to grasp the power of prayer and leave the unknown up to Him. Right now, what God wants you to do with this is not to qualify this thing, but to practice it. To, to actually believe God for that which you need. There are real answers as to why you don't receive the things that you're asking for. And I'll explain those at another time. But for now, understand that effective intercessors, power in prayer, is dependent on faith in God. So if we're going to be effective intercessors, we must exercise faith in God. But there's also something else. We must not only exercise faith in God, but also extend forgiveness to others. Effective intercessors must extend forgiveness to others. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now that's a pretty simple verse. The explanation's clear. Jesus wanted them to see the important role of forgiveness as they sought to represent God through prayer. This would be tied to it. If they were going to be the new covenant praying community of God, if they were going to be replacing the temple as they knew it, yes, they needed faith in God, but they also needed forgiveness for others. So remember, while you're praying... Here the word is standing praying. Now I want you to understand something. When you see something like that in the Bible, standing praying, it doesn't mean that you have to pray that way. That is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. He's not saying you must stand to pray. Sometimes we pray standing. Sometimes we look in the Bible and we see people praying prostrate before God. Sometimes we see people praying in a kneeling position. That doesn't matter. But what does matter here is that when you are praying, you are to be a people of forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness would be so important to prayer that he would say that it seemed to be a condition of one's own forgiveness. This is scary stuff. A lack of forgiveness would block the connection between the pitiful petitioner and the all-powerful God. Now, you may not be aware of this, but I need to help you know it. Unrepentant sin always blocks us from God. Unrepentant sin always blocks us from God. Have you ever had the experience before maybe when you're on your phone and you're talking to somebody and uh, you think you're talking, you can hear yourself talking, but it seems like they don't hear what you're saying? Well, it's the unique feature of the mute button on your phone you've accidentally hit that before you know what it means you can yell as loud as you want to but that person's not going to hear you and then you finally realize what's going on typically after you hung up and call back (laughs) and that it was on in a similar way unrepentant sin is like hitting the mute button and talking to god it is just a clear forfeiture of any privilege or right that you would have to talk to him and i want to back this up biblically i'm going to read you some verses i would encourage you to write them down and look at them later if you want to be convinced more isaiah 59 2 explains it this way behold the lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear Deuteronomy 31, verses 17 and 18. 
And also in Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, God basically says, if they disobey, I will hide my face from them. And if you want to see a stirring account of this, look at Deuteronomy 1, 40 to 46, where the people of God were trying to cry out to him for deliverance and he would not hear them. And then one more passage, probably the most famous, Psalm 66, 18. David speaking, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think it's a pretty clear principle. Any unrepentant sin actually is like hitting the mute button. God will not listen. I say this to you kindly, non-Christian friend. If you're here today, you don't know that you've submitted your life to Jesus. Look, I appreciate your sentiments and wanting to pray before your meals and reach out to God in times of trial. I say this with all the kindness within me. He does not listen to you. If you refuse to repent of your sin, to receive the forgiveness that's been offered by Him, you are His enemy, you are not His friend. You are not His child. But a simple turning from your sin to trust in Him alone, that is what enables prayers to be heard. Say, I don't like that. I don't like it either, to be honest with you, but that's what the text says. That's what the Bible clearly records. Unrepentant sin distances us from answered prayer. So what I want you to see is that sin blocks prayer in general, but... The sin of unforgiveness, especially, distances us from that which we most need in prayer. And what do we need more than anything else in this world? Before we need power, before we need peace, we need pardon. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation between us and God. And so the text is reminding us that restoration with the holy God, who exercises wrath against those who have rebelled against Him, is especially denied to those who do not forgive others. And these are strong and scary words. When you see Jesus teaching on prayer in Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, listen to what He says on this same topic. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Man, that's strong. In fact, that was so strong, that teaching was so fundamental to the early church, that even some of the scribes who were copying the text of Scripture actually added that to this particular passage in Mark. You may notice that if you have a version like the ESV, it goes from verse 25 down to verse 27. You're like, what happened to verse 26? Well, for those of you with the King James Version or the New American Standard, (laughs) you're going to see those verses in there that I just told you. Now, what I'm saying is that, look, these are part of the Word of God, but they didn't originally show up here. They originally showed up in Matthew chapter 6. But all I'm pointing out to you is that it became such a fundamental teaching of prayer in the first century that it just became habit for the scribe who was copying it to actually write in that warning because it was just so much a part of prayer in first century teaching. The principle is rock solid. Forgiveness toward others is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, an integral part of what it means to be an effective intercessor, a powerful prayer. Jesus once told a story 
I'll retell it for you in uh, the shortest way possible. There was a servant who owed a king a billion dollars. Now you're thinking, how would anybody ever owe anyone a billion dollars? Well, in that day, they gave their servants, their property managers, resources to invest, make money, and to give it back. You know what that's like. You're entrusted with that. If you've ever worked a job as a teller or a cash register at some point, you get a drawer with $200 in it, and the expectation is by the end of the day that there's more money in that thing than you started off with. In a similar way, that's what's being done here. He gives the guy an exorbitant amount of money. I say a billion dollars in our own culture because that's about like what it would equal. It was just off the charts what he owes. And the strange thing is the guy blows the money. A billion dollars. But he's forgiven freely by the owner. That same day, the guy who was just forgiven goes out, and when he goes out, he finds a guy that owes him $1,000. And he strangles him because he wants his $1,000. And when the king hears about it, the one who had just pardoned the billion, he throws that guy into jail. You'll find this in Matthew 18, 21 to 35, but here's the biblical conclusion, quoting from the words of Jesus. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness must be extended to others because it is the proof that we even have a prayerful connection to God. In other words, a refusal to forgive reveals that we may not be forgiven in the first place. A refusal to forgive reveals that we may not be forgiven in the first place, which means God doesn't hear our prayers. The moral of this story is that the forgiven by God will forgive. And if someone refuses to forgive, they probably haven't been forgiven by God. One writer put it this way, the point here is that then a community in which Christians nurse grudges against each other and refuse to let go of real or imagined offenses cannot expect the power of God to flow through it. True. A lack of forgiveness blocks the prayers of the entire community. Notice this in verse 25. I wish we could like southernize some portions of Scripture because when you see the word you there in verse 25, it is a second person plural. I've been in North Carolina for a week, so I can do this. And whenever y'all stand praying, forgive if y'all have anything against anyone, so that y'all's Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive y'all, y'all's trespasses. You got the point. But isn't it interesting, though, that he's talking to the group? And not just the individual? When you read that, you're thinking of your own personal relationships. He is concerned for the community. He's concerned for the group. He's concerned for the whole team. God hates disunity. And he declares that it would be a forfeiture of his power. Potentially revealing one's own lack of pardon. Now this would have been so tough for that first century community. Think about it. In a first century church, you would have had slaves and slave owners in the same congregation. 
you would have had Jews and Romans in the same congregation. They would have been attending the same church. And thus they needed to remember that the power of God's people in prayer would be tied directly to their oneness as a body. It's a big deal. God hates disunity. So on a corporate level, at a church like Faith Bible, I don't care where you come from, black, white, Hispanic, we need to be one in Jesus. Liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. Rich and poor, mature and immature, they must exist in the same place. We must be one. And I say all this to say that hostility toward others in the church is just, it's not something to play around with. It's not something to play around with. It cannot be tolerated. We must be captivated by forgiveness offered to us in Christ so that we can freely extend that to others and be effective in our prayers. I am wasting my time every Sunday when I stand up here and I pray for us together and you pray with me if we are not at one with one another in this body. It matters. It has a consequence. Don't just think about you and your life. Think about what your lack of forgiveness does to this body. That's what Jesus wants you to understand. But I've got to say that I don't think we'll suffer from this as a group as long as we're concerned about this as individuals. See, the truth of this reminder to forgive is most easily revealed in your own heart. The text says, if you have anything against anyone, I just want to ask you simply, is there anyone in your life that you have anything against? Maybe it was for abuse or abandonment or adultery or theft or dishonesty or some favoritism. As hard as those things may be, I want you to notice something in this text. It says that Christians are commanded to forgive if they have and these are the words in the text, anything against anyone. And here's the kicker. Whether or not the other person is repentant. You may be here today and say, you know what, I'm ready to forgive when that person comes to me groveling on their knees begging for forgiveness. But that is not what the text says. Anyone, anything. I wish effective prayer were just a mere matter of a physical building like the temple. That would be so easy. For some of us, it would be easier to take a plane trip to Jerusalem and visit the Temple Mount than it would be for us to forgive. And yet, these are the conditions that Jesus gives. Now, I need to ask a question here because some of you, I understand it's not that black and white. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to struggle to forgive. So the question would naturally come, well, what if you forgive imperfectly? I want you to know it's okay. <laughs> There's a big difference between struggling to forgive and refusing to forgive. Say that again. There's a big difference between struggling to forgive and refusing to forgive. Jesus died to even help you with that. I don't want you to think that you somehow have to muster up the same type of forgiveness that Jesus himself was able to do. For many of us, it will be a process. I appreciate John Piper's words on this text as he says this, struggling to forgive is not what destroys us. As long as we are in the flesh, we will do our good deeds imperfectly, including forgiving and loving others. 
Jesus died to cover those imperfections. What destroys us, though, is the settled position that we are not going to forgive, and we have no intention to forgive, and we intend to cherish the grudge and fondle the wrong that someone did to me and feel the bitterness. It feels good. I like to go to my bed with my wrath at night because he legitimately wronged me. I am going to hold this against him the rest of his life. You notice the difference? There's two types of people. There's the rebel and then there's the weak. Poet Stephen Crane described the rebel this way. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who squatting upon the ground held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Too many people become that ugly, stooped character eating away at their hearts because they believe they like the taste. And I'm telling you, if that is you here this morning, it is very possible that you have not been forgiven by Jesus himself. It is very possible that you do not know the magnanimous grace that has been extended to you in the person of Jesus on the cross. You may not know His forgiveness. But maybe you're the other person. You're here today and you say, you know what, I'm I'm trying to forgive. I forgive imperfectly. The, The faults of what happened, they just keep coming up. I keep remembering these things. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. That's what the company of Christians that you partner with here in this church are for. Let us help you. Let us constantly come around you and remind you of the realities of the gospel and help you through those hard times. I understand that you will not perfectly represent Jesus here in this life. But in the meantime, we can help you with that. That's what we are here for. We want to speak the gospel to you. We want to constantly remind you about the righteousness offered in Christ. We want to enable you. So reach out if you need help. On this Father's Day, I can't help but reflect on the final breakfast that I enjoyed with my own father this week. It was Tuesday morning, and it was great. It was a full meal replete with cathead biscuits. If you've never heard of a cathead biscuit, it is a biscuit the size of a cat's head. (laughs) They're big It had bacon, egg, and way too much cheese. Also in that same meal that day was some of the sweetest tea I've ever drank. I don't know if it's because I've been out of North Carolina for so long, but I literally had to go to the bathroom, pour half of it out, and then go ask the lady to put some unsweet tea in there. I hate to admit that, but this stuff was strong. (laughs) But even better than the food was the conversation. I don't remember much of what we talked about, like the details, But the conversation was comfortable. It felt like home. The only thing I did remember about our talk beyond the sensation of comfort was the way that my dad described all the people walking into the restaurant. This was his place. He eats here five days a week. And he spoke of everyone in terms of what they did. Probably four tables back behind us was A.J., And A.J. sold specialty hardware. Then walking in a few minutes later was Jack. Jack was the guy who had been helping my dad with estimates on his jobs for the last 10 years. 
there was this guy with Jack. We didn't know his name, but Dad did know that this guy meets together with Jack every week and they help one another spiritually. And then there was the girl standing at the front, or actually behind the counter, making biscuits. And she was the one who normally rings up people's order. (laughs) But they were clearly understaffed that day. It was interesting to me that every person in the restaurant was most readily recognizable to him on the basis of what they did. Not necessarily what their name was or where they were from. It was what they did. And I think we all do this to some degree, do we not? You ask, who's that person? And they give you the name. And then the immediate question is, what does he do? What does she do? What people do really conveys who they are. That's not anything to resist. I think Jesus also intends for his people to be characterized by what they do. By their actions. We've looked at other texts in Mark and we know that we as a people are to be characterized by the preaching of the gospel. That's what we do. But what this passage tells us is that preaching the gospel isn't the only thing we do. It is also prayer. We are to be a people characterized by prayer. Not just any prayer, but powerful prayer. Prayers of faith. Prayers of forgiveness. God intends for us, His people, to be a powerful community of prayer, even without the temple. We are the temple. Christ has made it possible for us to have direct access to God, and He will work in response to our prayers of faith, our lives of forgiveness. So what do we do now that the Jerusalem temple has been condemned and replaced by the praying community? We pray. We pray powerfully. We intercede effectively. A couple of action items for you as we close today. The first would be this. You sit here, you hear this lesson. This calls all of us to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves. My question for you today as you examine yourself is this. Ask yourself, do I have faith in God alone? Is it a real, personal, exclusive trust in Him? Here's a question. Have you extended forgiveness to others? Thereby proving you've been forgiven yourself? When these things are in place, prayer will be powerful. If, if they're not in place, you don't know that you've placed your faith in Christ. You don't know that you can forgive or you have this unwillingness to forgive, this bitter grudge against someone else. and It causes you to even doubt if God's hearing your prayers. I would encourage you to talk to one of the church members around you and let us share clear gospel truth with you in examining yourself and your prayer life this morning. First and foremost, we need to make sure we're one of His children and that He is actually listening to us. And the requirement for that is faith. And the result of that faith would be something as concrete as forgiveness. So after you've examined yourself, there's only one other thing left to do. And it's not really fancy. It's pray. Pray. Do it. (laughs) Pray. There's a couple of types of prayer that I would extend to you today. First is individually. Maybe, in all seriousness, one of the most practical things that you could do is just try it out. Start saying, Lord, I believe, I trust. I count on the fact that you will. And see how that changes your prayer life. 
Pray with confidence. Pray with faith. But it's not just individually. I want you to remember the y'all. Let's pray together. Our church offers so many opportunities to do that. I want you to know a few of them. When I stand up here and pray on Sunday, I'm not trying to impress anybody in the room. What I'm trying to do is lead us together in praying for one another. It's part of what we do as a church family. If you were to take somebody from the 16th century church and drop them in our church today, I said this a couple weeks ago, I think one of the major things that they would comment on is the lack of prayer. The pastors and I talk about this all the time. We want to grow in that. We want to provide more opportunities for us to pray together. Hey, but while you're here, pray with us here in service. Wednesday nights, we come together and pray as a church. And it is indeed a prayer time. What I love about Faith Bible Church is when we get together, we are praying. We have a group of men that meet on Tuesday morning and they pray together. Pray with other Christians. Do that. This, this, this should characterize you more than any person, more than any place. It should be the practice of prayer that sets you apart as the new covenant community of God. You don't have anyone to pray with. You're not involved in a small group. Just find a couple of other believers and say, hey, let's get together and let's pray at least twice a week for the same things for the next three months. That's what Christians do. Now, in light of what Jesus has called us to be, in light of His command to be effective intercessors, let's pray together before closing in song. Lord, we're grateful for the simple reality of this text. You now intend for us to represent You by depending on You in prayer. May the prayers of these saints be powerful and effective. May great things, impossible things, be done for the kingdom of God as we pray individually and as we pray together. Lord, if there's any disunity or discord among us today, I pray that Lord, you would convict the heart and that that person would repent of that or receive help from another believer here. Or if there's anyone here today that is yet to trust you, is yet to turn from their sin, to, to place their trust in you alone, to, to pursue you, Lord, I pray that that would happen today. Or give us gospel conversations as we leave this place. And that we would all, in this building today, come to a full faith, a saving faith in you. If there's any who have not done that yet. And Lord, when it all happens in the end, or we're going to praise you for it. Lord, it's your power. This is your church. And we're grateful to be a part of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen.